uh, with our series on uh, Christmas. So, all right. So the, the first question in the series that we did, which we started two weeks ago, was what question? It was a really simple question. Do you remember what it was? What is Christmas? What is Christmas? You say, that's, a, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard, Pastor. We know what Christmas is. Obviously, we know what it is. But we discovered that Christmas, well, is a lot of things. Because there's no, there's no like, annual celebration of Jesus' birth in the Bible. This is not a biblical thing. This is like three, four centuries after Jesus was born, people start celebrating his birth for various reasons and all that. But you don't see anybody do that in the scripture. It happens in, in Matthew, it happens in Luke, and it's done. N nobody even refers to it at all, specifically the birth of Jesus, except Jesus himself in passing when he's being interrogated by Pontius Pilate. So it's very curious that, of course, we celebrate this thing every December 25th in most cultures. Interesting, curious. It's, 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 you can choose to do something biblical with it if you want. It's got mythology in it with, you know, Santa and all that. Just so you know, I am the Santa in my house. Some of you guys, you know that. You're the Santa. So when people want their Christmas gifts, what do you say? You say, well, you need to tell Santa what's, what you want because Santa has a lot of shipping issues and all of this. And, you know, he's getting older and he's getting grayer, right? So there's an element of mythology to Christmas. And I know some, some gets some Christians uptight when you talk about Santa Claus. They used to get me uptight too. But, folks, there's an element of this. And if we start making these, these claims and saying, well, you know, Christmas is, is Jesus, and we, we can't stand this commercialization, we can't stand these Christmas trees, and we can't stand this, and we can't, we're, people are entitled to those kinds of opinions, but we don't have a biblical case for that. So when people do what they want with Christmas, folks, we can't be pointing fingers and saying, well, you're wrong, you have to celebrate Jesus. Nobody celebrated Jesus' birth until the third, fourth century. So for us to say we have some sort of corner on the season or on the holiday, we don't have a biblical basis for this. Nobody really knows when Jesus was born. We can guess. We can make estimates. So when we ask the question, what is Christmas, and we want to do something Bible-like with it, well, we can appreciate the incarnation. We can appreciate that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the God, the creator uh, that we see in the Bible, and he is the one true God. This we can appreciate at Christmas, and we call this the incarnation. Okay, good. But the question that we want to wrestle with today in this whole theme of questioning Christmas is why believe it? Now, I know this makes people who come to church every week nervous and anxious and, you know, we don't, we don't often think like non-Christian people. But I want you to step out of your Christian bubble a little bit, and I want you to think about what a non-Christian person who's thinking thinks about Christmas, and even yourselves. You know, folks, like what honestly happens, I'm just going to be really, really blunt honest with you. You know, you, you, you come to church, you bring your kids to church, you try and raise them, you, you know, in a, in a 
Christ-centered atmosphere. You try to do everything that you can. And then the older and older they get, in some cases, you start to see them change. Maybe you saw it in, even in yourself. You start to see yourself change. You start to see yourself asking questions about the things that, well, nobody's really asking questions about in church. Rare that people are interrogating their own faith these days. But this is what happens, folks. And, you, you know, you're, you're raised with Santa on the one hand and Jesus on the other. And, you know, as you grow older, you, well, okay, you, hopefully you're, you're realizing Santa's a myth. But is Jesus? Maybe he is. Maybe you start asking questions. Maybe you start saying, well, what's the difference? Maybe you start wondering, what do I believe and why do I believe it? And is there any reason for me to believe the things that I believe? And dare anyone ask a question, lest they get looked at sideways by, you know, wh whoever's in charge of the church and the clergy looks at you, you can't ask that question. We believe in Jesus here. Well, I don't know. I have questions. Well, get out. A lot of times people feel this way, that they're not allowed to think, folks. Well, it wasn't it Jesus who said, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? How in the world are you going to love God if your mind is rejecting the Christian message? You're, in a con you're contradicting yourself. The mind, the heart has to be in harmony together. You can't love God with your heart and not your mind and not your mind and not your heart. The two flow together, you see. So where, where are these questions being answered? And the answer is, a lot of times, nowhere. And people silently struggle with these questions. And they say, well, you know, it's really impressive. We all believe these things, but none of us really thinks about why. So I want to interrogate Jesus' birth for a few moments today and ask you the question, why believe it? So I put this out over our mass communication system last night. I don't know if any of you got the question or you thought about it, but I asked you to sleep on this question. Why do you believe the Bible? Or specifically at Christmas time, why do you believe these stories about Jesus's birth in Matthew and Luke? Why? If someone asks you the question, why? If your kids ask you the question, if your grandkids ask you the question, why? And they ask why a lot, don't they? Don't your kids ask why? Don't they say, why is the sky blue? Don't they say, why this, why this, why this, why this? Do you like it when they say why? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But as they're saying why, that means they're growing, doesn't it? They're asking you questions. Their brain is like a, like a sponge grabbing all of this information. And they want answers to questions. Well, is anybody allowed to ask God why? Is anybody allowed to ask the Bible why? Is anybody allowed to ask, why do I believe these things? Well, I think you are. So my question to you is, why do you believe the things that you believe? And I've asked this question, folks, to Christian people for three decades. I was teaching the Bible before I was a pastor, and now that I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor for more than 20 years now, I've asked this question to Christians over and over and over and over and over again, and usually I get the same answer. It's the most common answer for why, when you ask people, why do you believe? Here's what they say. Are you ready? They, they say, well, I had this happen to me. 
I had this experience. I was living a certain way. I asked Jesus to come into my life and to forgive me for my sins. And my life was transformed. And I don't live the same way, talk the same way, think the same way. My life was completely transformed. I had this experience, and so I believe. Or something along the same lines, because I have faith. Say, why do you believe the Bible? Because I have faith. Because I have this experience. Because it works. It worked for me. I put God to the test, and it works. Now, folks, I'm not knocking these kinds of answers. These are not bad answers. These are the these are most common answers that people will have when you ask them why they believe the Bible. But this is an incomplete answer. You say, Pastor, you're knocking my testimony, you're knocking my story. No, 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 I'm not at all. I'm going to tell you why the Bible says that your answer is incomplete in a second. But that's an incomplete answer. Now, I just want you to think for a moment. Again, think, don't think in your Christian bubble. Think outside of your bubble for a minute because that's where 99% of the population lives. It's outside of the church and outside of the things that we're learning, okay? So I want you to think a little bit uncomfortably. If you're watching online, you know it's going to stretch you a little bit, but I want you to think about this. You are going to meet people of all different kinds of faiths, beliefs, persuasions, who are going to say something very similar to you. They're going to say, I lived a certain way, I was this way, and I became a Muslim. And this is what happened in my life. And so I believe. I lived this way, I was this way, and I became a Mormon. And this is what happened to me, or I became a Hindu, or I became a um, uh, I, I got into Reiki or whatever. I got into a different religious view than Christianity, and yet they have the same experience as you, or very similar. And you're going to say, well, how, that, how could that be? I thought mine was the only, I thought Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. That's, that's isn't that what how come they have the same experience? That's, all, that's one thing that you're going to struggle with. Number two, what you're going to struggle with, if your answer is, I have this story, I have this experience, I have this testimony, and that's all you have, then what's going to happen when your story and your experience and your testimony is terrible? What's going to happen when you go through a stream of trouble in life that's out of your control? And your experience is awful. And you say, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and it got worse when I prayed. I asked God for deliverance. I asked God for healing. I asked God for a solution. And my situation got worse. It didn't get better. And don't tell me that none of you have had that experience before. All of you have. You just bury it down, and you try and figure out a way to, well, I don't know why that happened. I still keep on praying anyways. But that's life, folks. I know people in this room, and you've had one knock after the other, after the other, after the other. You pray your brains out, and it gets worse. It gets worse. You say, what's wrong? Is this not true? I thought this was true. How come it works for him? It doesn't work for me. How come the Bible says this? And you come up with all of this. You're doing all these gymnastics, driving yourself crazy, because all you have is that story and that experience and that testimony, and that's what brought you to faith. Okay, that's good, but that's not complete. 
Because in as much as it brought you to faith, it can bring you out of faith. You get a good story, a good thing happens to you, a good testimony, you say, I believe. You get a bad thing, a bad testimony, a bad story, a bad experience that doesn't go away, say, I don't believe anymore. You can't just hold on to that, folks. It's very shaky ground when that's all you have. You say, you're knocking my testimony. No, I'm not knocking your testimony. Let me tell you what the scripture says. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They triumphed over him. The him is the accuser, the, the, uh, the enemy, Satan, if you will. They triumphed over him by what? The blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Two things there. It's not only by their testimony. It's by the blood of the Lamb. That's not something that they did. That's not something that they can control. That's something that Jesus did. It's referring to the death of Jesus on the cross in this metaphorical way, the blood of the Lamb. That's how they overcame. He did something that is a fact, according to the writer at least, and they have a story because of that. But they don't just know the story. They know what he did as well. There's two things there. And a lot of times, all we have is the word of our testimony, but we don't know why we believe the things that we believe. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I want to introduce you, if you have never read any of this guy's work or seen anything on the internet or whatever, I want you to introduce you to, uh, I think he's one of the better uh, explainers of why Christianity is true because he comes at it from an interesting angle. His name is J. Warner Wallace. He used to be a cold case homicide investigator. So solved cold cases. That means that you've got a murder case and it's gone cold. And it's years and years and years, sometimes decades, decades later, sometimes everybody who is around is, is, is passed away, and he's trying to solve this case. This guy was quite well known uh, before his conversion to Christianity. He was on Dateline and interviewed on news stations and all this, and has become a Christ follower, came from a skeptical position from a position of unbelief and atheism, and approached Christianity as if it were a crime scene, as if it were a cold case, and came to the conclusion that Christianity is true on its own, whether anybody believes it or not. And here's what he says, I'm not a Christian because it works for me. I had a life prior to Christianity that seemed to be working just fine. And my life as a Christian hasn't always been easy. I'm a Christian because it is true. I'm a Christian because I want to live in a way that reflects the truth. I'm a Christian because my high regard for the truth leaves me no alternative. That's the testimony and the blood of the Lamb, you see. So this guy has used his trade on Christianity comes to the conclusion, if he treats Christianity and the, the life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, as if it were a crime scene, a 2,000-year-old crime scene, the testimonies line up. They would line up in a court of law. We would have a conviction. We would know that all of these things were, were true. And these eyewitnesses, whoever they were, who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are reliable eyewitness testimonies. This is his conclusion. He runs around all over the world and teaches these things, writes some good books, good videos, and all that. 
So I want to borrow from Wallace's, some of Wallace's work, and teach you a really, really simple principle that's got nothing to do with your testimony and nothing to do with your story. And I guarantee you, most of you have never, ever heard this in the halls of a church building before. And you probably won't very, very often. Uh, the, this kind of thing is reserved for little Bible studies here and there, but I, I don't know why, because now the masses are questioning what they believe. The movement of deconstructionism within the, the, the household of faith is intense. There are people who are walking away from their faith and so on, so I don't know why this is not addressed in a more public fashion, but I'm going to do it for you in just a few minutes, okay? And you can re-watch this later on, this content, it will be posted and so on, but I'm going to make it very, very simple, just borrowing one concept from the way that he teaches it, Warner Wallace, again, the former cold case homicide investigator. Think of the Gospels, folks. Think of the story of the birth of Jesus as a 2,000-year-old story. It's 2,000 years old. Now, you tell me, because you're so smart, and you all know the answer to this question if you think about it, what do you need in order to trust a 2,000-year-old story? Corroboration, okay, good. Proof would be nice, yeah, but here's the problem with a 2,000-year-old story. Eh, you got no, there's no internet. You, man, you don't even have a Polaroid camera, right? Much less, you know, one of these phones. You got no pictures. Everybody's dead, like, for 2,000 years. They're all gone. All the people who allegedly were there, they're all gone. It's like a cold case. What do you need to trust a 2,000-year-old story? Facts, okay. Faith would be nice, but faith in what? Faith of the truth? Well, what if it's not true? What if you don't have many of those sources? Need other sources? It's true, but what if you don't have too many? What are you going to do? Just believe? Test it out? Okay, maybe it works, but is that all you got? See, logical consistencies in the story? Okay, that's good, that's good. Okay, let's, let's, let's zoom forward a little bit. Uh, Y'all heard of the, what do you call the uh, Titanic? Well, yeah, the, the, but how, how do you know the thing happened? All the people, uh, there may be one or two people who might still be alive from it, but let's say they're not. Let's say they're all gone. How do you know it happened? Well, the ship's in the bottom of the sea. That's a pretty, pretty good. Let's say, let's say nobody found the ship. Okay, you got, you got reports, you got written facts, but how old are those, those reports? Saw the movie. <laughs> well, you see, here's, here's, here's what you do. If you don't have a whole lot to go on, right? You're talking 2,000 years, not 200 years, not 300 years. You're talking 2,000 years. And you've got what? You've got some reports that have been written down. In a sense, that's really all we have. Yes, we have some pieces of existence about Jesus. They're scant, but we do have some non-Christian sources who corroborate the existence of Jesus, that he was crucified, who he was crucified under, the birth of the church. We have a lot of, well, not a lot, but we have a scant amount of those things. Okay, but let's say we didn't have any of it. 
And all we had were these reports, these supposed eyewitness stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When it comes to the Christmas story, all you've got is Matthew and Luke. Okay, well, let's say that's all you got. What do you need those things to be? The Holy Spirit is with us, but what if a person says, I don't believe in your Holy Spirit. I want to know what's true, and then maybe I'll believe in your Holy Spirit. With all due respect, but that's what non-Christians are thinking. Story, how do you know? Yeah, you need those stories. You need those eyewitness testimonies, supposedly. You need those things to be trustworthy, right? And how do you know if a 2,000-year-old story, being frank with you, is trustworthy, folks? Look at names, look at references, okay, maybe. Maybe you can corroborate some of the things they say with, you know, archaeology and that, and you can do that. You can do that with some, some things in the New Testament, true, true, true. But what, what do you need, basically? You got a 2,000-year-old story. Let's say it's not about Jesus. Let's say it's about something less profound. It's still 2,000 years. What do you need about that story to believe? What do you need about those eyewitnesses? Okay, well, let's say they were there, but they're dead. All of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you know they're reliable? What do you need to know about those manuscripts? Manuscripts are copies of the originals. What do you need to know about those manuscripts? Ah, you need them to be old. Old. You want them old. Old. As old as they can be. You want those supposed, alleged eyewitness accounts that you have, you want those things to be old, 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 as old as possible, as close to the time of the events in question as, as possible, old. In other words, you don't want some, somebody saying, hey, uh, and they're writing in the year 2023, and they're going to say, listen, let me tell you what happened 2,000 years ago. There was this guy, and he did this, and he did this. You're going to say, with all due respect, you weren't there. You're telling me this 2,000 years later? Well, how am I supposed to believe your crazy story? It's 2,000 years later. What are you, a time traveler? How do you know that this took place, right? So you want someone, you want that information. In this case, all we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How old is it? Can we get it really, really, really old? And what, what are police detective friend will talk about is the chain of custody of the evidence, the chain of custody. In other words, at a crime scene, in a cold case, in his line of work, you, you go back to the original evidence. You say, well, the, the cop took this report from this witness. The witness is now dead, even the cop is dead. But we've got this report, it's 40 years old, it's in the file. Let's look at the report. Hey, it's 40 years old. That's a report. That's old. Let's look at that report. Did anything happen to that report over the last 40 years? Anyone tamper with that piece of evidence? Well, we have this single strand of hair. Well, did anyone tamper with that evidence? What's the chain of custody of that evidence? Has it has it been preserved over all this time, or has there been somebody fooling around with this evidence and tinkering with this evidence? I want to know the chain of custody. If it's old, 
How old is it? And is there a good chain of custody of the evidence? And he does the same thing with the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. On your screen there, you've got uh, the, the years. So from 30 AD to about 110 AD, you see that little red cross there? What's that? That's the crucifixion of Jesus, which I will place there at around 33 AD. Some people say 29, some people say later, some people, I'll put it at 33 just to satisfy the masses, okay? And this is a chain of custody of the evidence that we have about the stories of Jesus. I'm about to show it to you. We don't know, folks, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. We don't. And we don't have any of the originals of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All we have are these copies, or what's called manuscripts. That's all we have in the sense of how close can we get to them and their hands writing on those documents. That's all we've got. Nobody knows exactly when those pieces of literature, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written. Not exactly. But we know some other things, so stay with me. We can pinpoint at least the ministry of the Apostle Paul to a T. And scholars on the conservative side and the liberal side will agree, and we do this because of a couple of inscriptions that we found in archaeology, and we know when Paul would have written sort of par rapport of those, those inscriptions, and we can date his ministry at least from, I think it's 48 to, uh, to 68. Or 50 to 68, that's what it is. 50 to 68, we know that the Apostle Paul would have lived between those dates, again, because of these inscriptions we found, which match things in the book of Acts. And we say, well, no one's going to make up this little minutia detail. So obviously, his ministry would have been between 50 and 68. When did he exactly write? Well, we'll give him that. Let's say he wrote his material between 50 and 68. Do we have any documents that are that old? No. But let's just say that he would have written the material down between 50 and 68 because that's when his career would have taken place. And this is very well defined, again, by inscriptions that we found that match things in the New Testament, little small little details. You with me so far? I'm going to go through this really, really quickly. What else do we know? You see where it says 70 and you got those red dots going down? What's that? Yeah, that's a major, major cataclysmic event in the history of Jerusalem when the temple and the city were destroyed in the year 70 by uh, Titus under uh, Vespasian and so on. This is a, a, a very well-known fact of history, highly attested to uh, by sources of the time, and even now you can go back to the city and see the, the ruins and the remains of the retaining wall and so on. That fact of history, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70, is referred to nowhere in the New Testament. Not even alluded to, not even hinted at, it is referred to nowhere. Now that's a clue. There would be a reason for the New Testament not referring to it at all, most likely because it hadn't happened yet. There's not a shred of it. The only thing we know about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is that Jesus seems to have predicted it. And we see this toward the end, toward his crucifixion, but nobody writes of it ever happening. Nobody. So there's there's a possibility that that means that the entire New Testament might have been written before the destruction of the temple. 
because it's not even referred to, just a possibility, something to think about. And then we move on, and here's what we see, talking about the chain of custody, the evidence, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the rest of the New Testament. We see from uh, the writings of the early church fathers, people who knew, there's a handful of people who knew John the Apostle, who knew Peter the Apostle, who knew Paul the Apostle, we have the things that those people wrote, and they're really, really old. The earliest is about 96, that we start seeing these preachers who were taught by uh, uh, John the Apostle and Peter and by Paul. We know their names. We start looking at what they wrote, and you know what they do a lot of? They preach the story of Jesus. They quote from the New Testament. They uh, refer to events in the New Testament. They refer to parts, pieces, shreds. The story lines up the same way. So as early as 96, we've got these preachers who are preaching the same message that we find in the contents of the New Testament. As early as 96, we see those quotes appearing. We see those references appearing. And guess what? It's the same Jesus that you see in the Gospels. He's a miracle worker. He's born of a virgin and so on. The story, the general contours of the story line up. The question is, where in the world did they get this information? Well, they got it from John. They got it from Peter. They got it from Paul. They got it from the apostles. And it's passed on to them. And we have it in their writings, well-preserved starting in 96. That's really good. But we don't know when the rest of the New Testament was written, but let's just say between the cross and the quotes from these early church fathers, well, the rest of the New Testament would have had to have been written then, right? Because what are they quoting from? So let's just say from anywhere from 33 to 95 is when the New Testament would have been written because we're starting to see it appear in the preaching as early as 96, and we don't even have any manuscripts of the New Testament that we're talking about yet. We're talking about the chain of custody of evidence. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how old is it? When did it first start appearing? Is it close enough to the, to the events in question and so on? And then we look at these manuscripts or these copies of the New Testament that we have now found and we keep finding them. The oldest one, and this, I go by the liberal scholars' dates, not by the conservative scholars' dates, just for fun. The oldest one that we found is about one, some, some people say it's 100, some people say it might be 125. It's a little scrap from John's Gospel, chapter 18. It's got like four or five verses in it. We found this manuscript. It's called the John Rylands Manuscript, and it's really, really, really old. It's not the original John, but it's old. So if you think about it and you look at it, Man, you got some crazy good chain of custody there. Because what this all means is that this information, the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the rest of the New Testament, this information is being copied so fast that it's appearing in the preaching of these early church fathers as early as 96. And then we've got these manuscripts that are starting to appear as early as 100. We don't have a lot of old manuscripts, but we have some. And you look at that and you say, by golly, this, this information was transmitted extremely fast within the lifetime of the contemporaries of Christ. So people are copying this information, preaching this information, transcribing this information while the people who originally saw it were still alive. If you're going to do that and you're going to cook up a story, you might as well wait till the people are dead first. They didn't. 
They're copying it fast. There's nothing out of the ancient world. Go ahead and fact check me and Google every, anything you want on this. Trust me, folks, I get my information from the liberal scholarship, not from the conservative scholarship. This is, liberal scholars will agree with this. And they'll say, yes, it was transcribed really quickly. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. But you're assuming this, and you're assuming this, and you're assuming this. Well, yeah, to a degree I am. But when you look at this and you compare it to the rest of ancient literature and the accounts of things that happened in the ancient world, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that even holds a candle that's even in the same ballpark as the New Testament. Nothing. What does this tell us? There's something that happened there that they wanted the information to get out fast within the lifetime of the people who experienced it. Super, super fast. That's a chain of custody that's clean, that's pure. That's where we, we're getting our Bibles from, folks. We're getting it from this information. You don't have a change in the story. There's no time to inject a change into it. There's no time to cook up all these lies about Jesus and say this about him and say that about him. You don't have any time to do that, folks. And yes, the liberal scholars will say, well, you're assuming, you're assuming that you even know what was in the New Testament. You're assuming all of these things. Well, yes, I'm assuming it, but I've got quite a grand story about Jesus. Account after account, story after story, narrative after narrative, miracle after miracle, all of these things you have to find a way around because this was what was in the original content, folks. And this is what was spreading super, super fast, even within the lifetime of the contemporaries of Christ, this information is going out. In the 18, uh, uh, 1900s, late 1800s, there was a uh, a significant figure in the foundation of Harvard Law School. His name is Simon Greenleaf. I have his book. It's out of print now, The Testimony of the Evangelists. And he applies the rules of law and admissible testimony to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote a volume on it. It's quite interesting. And he comes up to the conclusion. This is one of the founders of Harvard Law School, folks. This guy, many of the practices of law in North America come out of his mind today. You can look him up if you want. And he comes to the conclusion that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are admissible testimony and trustworthy testimony in a court of law. They would be regarded as reliable eyewitness testimony of the events in question. You say, come on, these miracles of virgin birth, you believe in this virgin birth? You believe in these angels talking to Mary and saying, you're going to get pregnant with the Holy Spirit. You believe these things? Folks, don't deal, forget about the miracles for a second, all right? We're going to deal with miracles uh, next week. But as far as information from the ancient world, things that happen, eyewitness testimony, is the testimony reliable, yes or no? If you have a bias against miracles, we'll leave that out, we'll deal with that another time. But the events in question, as bizarre as they may be, would this be considered reliable testimony? So says the founder, one of the founders of Harvard Law, yes indeed. It would be considered reliable, it would pass in a court of law, and convictions have been made in court case after court case with less evidence than what we see in the New Testament and the Gospels about the life of Jesus. Fascinating to see that type of mind look at the Gospels and say, well, yeah, they've got these things in them, but uh, it, 
But as far as the rules of evidence, as far as the chain of custody of the evidence, as far as using this, and would it be considered trustworthy? It would. Just because it has miracles in it, does that mean we have to dismiss it? We'll conclude with this. This is what Luke says at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke as he's introducing the Christmas story. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is the his audience seems to be a generic name for someone who loves God, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Listen to me, Christian, in this room. You need to interrogate your faith. You need to know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, so that when your testimony goes sour... You say, no way, I'm not leaving my faith because I'm having a bad day or a bad year or a bad 10 years because I know the certainty of the things that I have been, been taught. I stand on the blood of the Lamb. I stand upon Jesus, his life, his death, his birth, his resurrection. These are the facts on which I base my stand. My testimony is because of that, but my testimony can change. My testimony, my experience can change all at once because I know regardless the certainty of the things that I have been taught. And that, my friends, is going to carry you in the days and weeks and months and years ahead in your life. Not only your experience, but your understanding of why those things that you read in the Scripture are true. Would you stand with me? We're just going to close in prayer. Musicians, you can come if you like and, and just play in the background. And uh, we're going to get ready. A uh, number of you in this room are headed over to the restaurant after. I'm looking forward to that. But folks, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there are those of you in this room, you say, I've never heard anything like that. I've never heard that from a church. I didn't know these things. Some of you, you're young people, you're going into schools, and the schools are telling you all kinds of things, and you're saying, man, these arguments sound good. It sounds like I'm believing in nonsense. It sounds like I'm believing in rubbish. Oh, no, you are not. God wants you to refine your faith to a point where it can stand the most difficult of trials because you know it's true. Father, I pray for each person in the room today, people of all ages, people who are watching online, young people, grandparents, everybody in between, in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would build a faith inside of each one of us that has some backbone to it, that has some knowledge to it, that has conviction to it, and that is built on what is true. I pray for those who ask questions and seek 
that you would push them to seek even more, to ask even more, to interrogate even more, that they would come to a certain place of what they believe. Regardless of what anyone would say, they would be able to know, I believe this because, and have a reason to stand upon even in the darkest of times. We pray together today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Have a great rest of day. If you're not coming to the restaurant, if you are, we'll be there at 1230. And uh, Beyonce is in here at 1230. So those of you who are staying behind to help tear down, thank you for that. Remember to pick up your kids in screen number 11. God bless you, everyone. Have a great day.